0: This week, both Jim and I are on the road. He's on assignment. I'm in Australia, which is on the front lines of dealing with the coronavirus which erupted in China. What we need to know about this outbreak and others in the future, infectious disease epidemiologist, Kylie Carville.
2: There's been some stuff in the media about, I saw this thing about coronavirus and I saw that thing about coronavirus. Coronavirus is a family. There's lots of them. I've had coronavirus. I've had a regular coronavirus that circulates among humans normally. Mm. Don't have to sit back.
0: Our show is about fixes.
2: Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it?
0: The coronavirus that began in Wuhan, China, is now a global health emergency. Authorities here in Australia and around the world have responded quickly, with quarantines, travel bans, and a range of public health measures. But this new form of coronavirus has traveled faster than SARS. Eradicating the microbe is a huge challenge. How worried should we be? What measures really work? I visited the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity here in Melbourne, Australia. It's one of the world's leading centres for research and developing a potential vaccine. Kylie Carville is a very busy epidemiologist who generously granted me some time. I asked her first about how the virus is spread.
2: The person-to-person transmission that we're seeing is not walking down the street people falling ill. It tends to be the original cases in countries outside of China were brought by someone who'd been to Wuhan or Hubei and then it's a close contact of them who's become unwell, their wife, their child, their parent. So we're not yet at the stage where we have free-for-all transmission walking down the street is a danger. In, in Australia, in the United States, in other countries.
0: So it's not a pandemic?
2: Not No, not yet. Whether it will become one, we kind of have to wait and see. So a pandemic is when we talk about a global epidemic. Now we are seeing some degree of transmission outside of China, but generally at this point it's all linked to someone who's come back and been ill. So when we are trying to identify cases when they come into the country, when we identify cases, we try to isolate them and follow up their contacts. Some countries don't have the same resources with which to do that. We also have really good access to diagnostics. So at the moment in the Northern Hemisphere, in China, it's winter. So we have all the normal respiratory viruses circulating. So someone turns up with a fever and cough, everyone freaks out. Oh, my gosh, maybe it's coronavirus, but maybe it's the flu. Maybe it's something else. So diagnostics to find out, do a laboratory test, is this actually coronavirus? Access to that's really important.
0: What kind of comparison can you make to previous outbreaks? For instance, SARS in 2003...
2: So SARS is a great example because that's also a coronavirus. So when we say coronavirus, we're actually referring to a family of viruses. And I think that's really important because there's been some stuff in the media about, I saw this thing about coronavirus and I saw that thing about coronavirus. Coronavirus is a family. There's lots of them. I've had coronavirus. I've had a regular coronavirus that circulates among humans normally. Don't have to sit back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... A lot of coronaviruses circulate in animals as well, and that's where we think this one has come from. So this one's new, and that's why there's the concern. So that's very similar to SARS.
0: And how is it different from SARS?
2: It's different both in terms of the virus and in terms of how we're responding. So it's about the genetic code says it's about 80% similar to SARS. Um, We don't know everything about this new novel coronavirus yet, but it does seem likely that it is less severe. So with SARS, the death rate depended on your age and whether you had an underlying medical condition and so on, but roughly around 10%. At the moment with this new virus, we think it's two to 3%, which is substantially lower.
0: How does it compare with something like the flu, which kills tens of thousands of people every year in the United States alone?
2: That's a really great question. Um, so flu can vary. So some years it's not that bad, some years it's worse. So it's probably a little bit worse maybe than a bad flu. But at this stage, we can't be 100% certain because when we talk about the death rate, we say how many people have died over how many people got it. We don't know yet with this new coronavirus how many people might be getting it but aren't getting that sick and they're not turning up to a doctor and being counted. So actually, there may be heaps of people, that number of people who are sick might be bigger, and that might make the, the percentage who've died look smaller. Conversely, uh, we may not be managing to record all the deaths from coronavirus. But we do think it's, at this point in time, in terms of its severity, it's, it's, It's hard to be 100% sure, but I would, you know, maybe a little like a severe flu, a very severe flu.
0: So we're comparing the flu. There was a very worrying flu viral outbreak in 2009. Can you talk about that?
2: Yes. So the flu and the coronavirus basically are viruses that can change a lot. And so that's why the flu is pretty much the only thing that we try to get adults vaccinated against every year, because we know about it. We know it changes a lot. There's a whole system in place trying to predict what will be the main strains of flu the next year and make a vaccine for it. And in 2009, there was one that had substantially changed enough that people were very worried about it. In the end, it turned out in your average person to not be that severe. But it did impact certain subgroups of the population a lot more. So pregnant women, for example, were very vulnerable. So it's always more complex than the simplistic, right? So even though, you know, you might say, oh, flu's bad. Well, some years it's bad, some years it's not. Sometimes it affects certain people more than others. And we still don't know that with this new coronavirus where that's necessarily going.
0: So with a very new outbreak like this, with coronavirus, Mm -hmm. It sounds like the biggest worry right now is the unknown.
2: Right. And so that's why the emergence of a novel virus catches our attention because we don't know where it's going to go. We don't necessarily have all the data we need at the beginning to work that out. But we do know what questions we need to ask. We do know what we need to be worried about. We okay, do know Okay, so, so what yeah, do we need to Okay. Ask? <laughs> so we need to be worried about how severe it is as we've just discussed. So at the moment, this looks a lot less severe than SARS or um, a similar coronavirus that emerged in the Middle East called MERS. So the second thing we need to be concerned about is how transmissible it is. Then we need to be concerned about some other features like how long's the incubation period? So the incubation period is the period between when you get infected and when you actually show symptoms of being infected.
0: And from what I understand now, it's about 14 days?
2: So on average, I think they're saying maybe five to seven but it can be 14. And so that's why a lot of the mitigation measures that are put in place are around 14 days to kind of cover that, what we think is the maximum.
0: And the thing that's alarmed some people
2: mm.
0: is that it's there's discussion about person-to-person transmission. Right. That this coronavirus can be caught and spread by one person to another.
2: Right. At the moment, outside of China we've only seen that transmission in people who are very close to a case. So it's spread by droplets. So what that means is when someone is coughing and maybe they don't block that cough, or sometimes if people might cough into their hand uh, and then without washing their hand, hand hygiene is very important people, without washing their hand, they might go and touch the strap on the bus We don't know how long coronavirus can stay in the environment, but very probably if someone's touching that while it's still a bit damp from that person's cough and then they rub their nose, that's a possible way you might get it. But it's not aerosolised. So it's not like measles where um, it can travel really, really far and we worry about anyone who's essentially walked past someone with measles. So that's why we advise people that if they think they're unwell and they go to their doctor or the hospital to put a mask on when they're going in and to let them know.
0: When I arrived here in Mm. Melbourne at the International Airport, there were vast numbers of people, especially from Asia, who had face masks. Is that being overdone? Are there too many people wearing face masks or doesn't it really matter?
2: Outside of China at the moment we don't really need, we don't need to be wearing masks. There is there does seem to be a cultural thing where in Asia in various Asian countries lots of people wear masks anyway. I think they're probably a lot more aware of hygiene, cough etiquette, things like that. And
0: also air pollution. And air pollution.
2: When we had our bushfires here, or when you have air pollution, that's when they worry about tiny, tiny particulate stuff that we can't even see. And that's where mask fit becomes really important, that it fits around your face. And that's what they want healthcare workers to wear is PPE. It's called personal protective equipment. So when healthcare workers will often wear these more tighter fit masks, just as a precaution. A lot of what we're doing at the moment is really erring on the side of being extremely cautious. But the general public at the moment in Australia, the United States don't need to be wearing masks. Is
0: there a risk of doing too much? Does does fear play a destructive element in this?
2: I think it can. I'm not sure that we're necessarily doing too much at the moment, but I do think fear can be damaging.
0: What are the best sites, the best places, for people to get more information about this outbreak or future outbreaks, given that there are examples of of flawed media coverage?
2: Yes, but there are also examples of really good media coverage, really thoughtful and really thorough. And so in the first instance... There are national and sub-national health departments are doing a lot to put out information. So in the United States, you've got the CDC. Uh, they have a lot of very comprehensive information. Here in Australia, there's information being put out both uh, by our f- national government, but also by the states and territories putting out location-specific and general information. So states like this one, such as yes, Victoria. Victoria. Yes, yeah. so... Um, And those sorts of sources and, of course, the World Health Organisation, their online information doesn't tend to be updated as rapidly. So people might find that frustrating, but they're a very authoritative source. So there are also research institutes that uh, can provide us with very useful information. So Johns Hopkins have a really great map that you can go to that shows the number of cases and deaths in various regions of the world. You know, that's a very authoritative source. I actually think in, in Australia, most media mainstream media outlets are actually doing a good job. I almost feel that, you know, the headline might be a bit scary, but when you read the content, everyone's really trying hard to do the job right. But
0: That's th- a that's a great point about the headline being scary. Yeah, Often yeah. it doesn't match so the So I guess
2: maybe I should say more about the medias. Don't just read the headline. <laughs> 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 um, but also I think I, I would probably be a bit more wary of social media. I mean, who are you following on Facebook and Twitter? And are they authoritative?
0: Kylie Carville of the Doherty Institute. I'm Richard Davies. This is How Do We Fix It. Jim is away this week. More coming up. recommendations. Of course, mine this week are about Australia. I found that Geoffrey Blaney's short but concise book, A Shorter History of Australia, is an excellent primer for anyone who's going to visit the country. Robert Hughes' classic history book, The Fatal Shore, is also remarkable. It looks at modern Australia's tragic beginnings as a penal colony. Now more from Kylie Carville on the spread of coronavirus.
2: At the moment, there is no wide-scale transmission in Australia, in the United States. The, the, trans, the person-to-person transmission we've seen at the moment is from someone, a case, to someone close to them. And by close, we, we define close contacts as 15 minutes of very close face-to-face or two hours in the same room, something like that. We don't define it as walking down the street and walking past someone coughing. That's not a problem. You're more likely to get flu.
0: So for you, what's the biggest threat?
2: I think that at this stage, it doesn't look, the death rate doesn't look that high. Now, obviously, that's of absolutely no concern to the families of the people who have died. And if a lot of people became infected, even a small death rate, implies the death of a lot of people and that has a large impact but we aren't looking at at the death rate in SARS we aren't looking at the death rate in MERS. So, so the so death rate's lower? It's lower it's substantially lower at the moment that we know of. Um, so I guess the thing is probably what most concerns me is what would happen in the more vulnerable countries and I guess that also is what is more concerning to WHO.
0: The more vulnerable countries, being the poorer countries that don't have the same Yeah,
2: so they may not have – um, and, and I certainly by no means wish to cast all countries with the same brush. There are many what we call developing countries um, that actually have quite good public health systems. They're used to dealing with outbreaks and they can respond quite well. Um, but – They may not have health systems that can provide, for example, if one of the main features that someone who's very unwell might need is is oxygen support, they may not be able to have the infrastructure to provide that to a lot of people, for example. Mm -hmm. And the other issue there is diagnostics. The building that we're sitting in is home to the Victorian Infectious Diseases Reference Laboratory. They have facilities that enable them to test patient samples for a range of novel, dangerous pathogens. So in Victoria, this is where we're testing and diagnosing the new coronavirus cases. Um, They recently grew the coronavirus, which is a really helpful aid.
0: That invites this question, which is uh, how far out could we be from either a cure or a more effective treatment? I know there's been progress in this building (laughs) at the Peter Doherty Centre.
2: Yeah, so... We're still a way off. There's some trials in China of antivirals that may help in treatment. Generally, what we're doing otherwise is more supportive uh, measures. Generally, we like to have a vaccine. Obviously, there is no vaccine and it takes time to produce a vaccine. But
0: How long in the best circumstances?
2: <laughs> well, so this is something that, that people have been working on. So, We are episodically seeing emerging infectious diseases. And so this idea that we may need to be able to more rapidly respond and develop vaccines more quickly has taken hold uh, more recently. So I think that we are in these sorts of events. The time from us having nothing to us having a potential thing that can be used as a vaccine has really, really been dwindling and, and I've read people who work in that field saying they're hoping they can get there in three months. Wow. But there's a number of different laboratories working on different vaccine candidates. People are hoping three months. But then you can't just go shoving that into somebody, right? So you have to do trials and there's a number of phases to that. They'll often do it in an animal first just to test like really initial safety, then they'll test it in a small number of people, then they'll test it in a bigger number of people. Those things take time.
0: How much cooperation is there among not only scientists in this country but also around the world?
2: That's another really good question um, because a lot of science is sort of done in silos where you're competitively funded by grants and, and it has that competitive nature. And I think people who work in this field have realised that it's not going to work. So there's, it, it, with, in terms of the vaccine development, there's even philanthropic funds kind of involved in this push to try and get vaccines quicker for emerging infectious diseases. So we've got there's some pharma companies involved, there's philanthropists involved, there's scientists from a number of different labs involved, and it's not necessarily a competition because the different labs are working on different vaccine candidates. Are you hopeful? Look, I am. I mean, I tend to be – I was nicknamed Pollyanna by a previous workmate. Um, Look, I am. I think that – I think we need to be alert, not alarmed, right now in in Australia and in the United States. I think that we we continue to learn from these things. So we've already mentioned the 2009 uh, new strain of flu. There was the coronavirus 2002, 2003 – Every time something happens, we learn and we're better prepared for the next time. I think people are taking a very cautious approach at the moment and I guess that, you know, which side of the fence would you rather fall on? Would you rather be overcautious um, and everything turns out reasonably okay or would you rather not be cautious at all? I think we all know what we would choose there.
0: Great. Thank you. <laughs> That's Kylie Carvel from the Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity in Melbourne, Australia. Jim and I will be back next week on How Do We Fix It? Responding to the chaotic Iowa caucuses as well as the New Hampshire primary. Special thanks this week to my good friends James Woollett and Susie Rogers. Without their help, this episode would not be possible. Our fine producer is Miranda Schaefer. Thanks to her for putting this together. If you like the idea of solutions, not just complaint journalism, please leave us a review and sign up for our fascinating newsletter at HowDoWeFixIt.me. We're a production of the podcast firm Davies Content. Learn more at DaviesContent.com. And as always, thanks for listening.
1: Planning for your next trip?